disability advocates call for action in the Department of Education. A ray of sunshine in the fight for personal independence for Floridians with disabilities. Enforcement of Jamaica's Disability Discrimination Act reaches a crossroads. And we continue our conversation with disability law expert William Gorin regarding future disability cases. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. Good evening. In news of the federal government, disability advocates across the country are seeking an increase in funding the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, which protects students with disabilities. Since its passage in 1975, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act has entitled students with disabilities to a free, appropriate public education. However, the process in obtaining said education can create a considerable burden for said students and parents, which may lead to the filing of civil rights complaints with the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. In the most recent data, cited in a story released today by Disability Scoop's Michelle Diamond, quote, the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights is investigating 4,775 complaints of disability discrimination at elementary, secondary, and post-secondary institutions, end quote. Diamant went on to write that a letter to President Biden and congressional leaders, signed by 91 disability and civil rights organizations, contends that funding for the U.S. Department of Education's Civil Rights Office will need to be doubled to $280 million for the 2025 fiscal budget, up from $140 million in 2023. In news regarding state government, Florida's state legislature has taken steps in the issue of determining when guardianship is appropriate. Essentially, if an individual with a disability is unable to make decisions for themselves, a court may place them under guardianship in which a person is entrusted by a court to make personal decisions on an individual with a disability's behalf. There are two types of guardianship, one based on legal decisions, including where a person with a disability will live, as well as their financial decisions. However, a strategy known as supported decision-making is cited as a less restrictive alternative to guardianship, since the practice emphasizes taking the wants and needs of the person with a disability into full consideration before appointing someone to make decisions on their behalf. In the new bills, one passed unanimously by the Florida House last Thursday, with its companion set to be voted on in the Senate tomorrow, courts would have to assess a person with a disability's needs before determining whether or not to appoint a guardian on their behalf, while still ensuring that said person with a disability has final say over personal decisions. And in international news, on February 14th, the two-year grace period expired for businesses and public accommodations across Jamaica to make their buildings accessible for individuals with disabilities. Jamaica first passed a law banning disability discrimination in 2014, with regulations added in 2022. An article published the same day by the Jamaica Gleaner cited comments by Jamaican Senator Lambert Brown made last December in session, in which he stated that, quote, lawmakers are the biggest promoters of lawbreaking when it comes to the Disabilities Act, end quote. Brown went on to cite that Gordon House, the hub of Jamaica's legislature, is not accessible 
and described his difficulty in accessing the chamber upon his return after recovering from sickness and brought up a 2016 promise by Senate President Tom Tavares Finson to build a lift in the building. In the same article, Executive Director of the Jamaica Council for Persons with Disabilities, Dr. Christine Hendricks, unveiled the process by which persons with disabilities may file a report to the council if their rights are violated. The council would then send the complaint to a tribunal should the offending entity refuse to comply. Hendricks said, quote, People with disabilities are part of the citizenry of our country, who have that right to access the service that you provide, end quote. Hendricks also cited an accessibility checklist on the council's website to assist businesses and other entities impacted by the law so as to make their places of operation more accessible. Hendricks also said, quote, You'll find the accessibility checklist to help you conduct a simple audit to ensure that you know what you need to fix, the doorway that needs to be widened, the ramp and the rail that needs to be in place, the signage that should be in your building to give direction or to give guidance, end quote. And now, part two of our interview on the latest court cases concerning disability with William Gorn, one of our nation's most renowned experts on disability law. Previously, Mr. Gorn spoke about the most recent disability Supreme Court case. Today, he joins us to discuss the next frontier in disability litigation. Especially now with this new case I know that uh, has come out of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals regarding service dogs as a reasonable accommodation that has been submitted to the Supreme Court for review but has not been accepted yet. The case is Hopman v. Union Pacific Railroad. And to summarize for our audience, you have Perry Hopman, who's a train engineer for the Union Pacific Railroad. He's an individual with post-traumatic stress disorder. Although he can perform his job well with no accommodations, Hopman filed an accommodations request to bring his service dog inside his workstation to help alleviate his symptoms, but was denied because such an accommodation would affect the safety of Hopman's colleagues. Hopman cited the equal benefits and privileges portion of the ADA in contending his service was a reasonable accommodation provided by himself rather than the railroad, which is not required to provide such an accommodation. So, Mr. Gorn, if the court took this case hypothetically, what would a ruling for either Hopman or Union Pacific Railroad mean for ADA enforcement in the workplace? You can't say until you see the ruling because you don't know how the ruling is going to be crafted. So until you see how the ruling is crafted, you can't say what the implications are. You can certainly describe the issues, but as far as the implications of what the Supreme Court does, we don't know until they come up with a decision. Certainly. And Union Pacific's brief opposing the Supreme Court taking the case said Hopman failed to cite any similar cases whatsoever and even claimed that the ones he did cite were unreported and not precedent. We have in the federal court system something called published cases and something called unpublished cases. You see it in the state court system, too. It used to be that published cases appeared in one kind of reporter, unpublished cases appeared in another reporter, and if it's an unpublished case, you couldn't cite it as precedent. Only published cases can be cited as precedent. Now you've got computers. Everything can be found all the time. So published cases are cited as precedent. Unpublished cases cannot unless, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, they can be if there's nothing else speaking on it. But all these unpublished decisions, they can be guidances to companies, and they are. 
lawyers read these things. I blog on these things. And all my blogs, I'll let you know whether it's published decision or unpublished decision, just because one could be more influential than the other. But we look at all of it as lawyers to try and make sense of what should people be doing? What should they be thinking about? What's the trends? So I can tell you that the Supreme Court does take unpublished decisions. They will decide to hear an unpublished decision from time to time. So whether it's published or unpublished is not a dispositive factor, as we say in the business, in terms of whether the Supreme Court takes a case or not. Because I know that Union Pacific used it, but again, that might not even have any impact on whether or not the court takes the case. Yeah, you're looking for a circuit court split is one of the biggest reasons why a Supreme Court will take a case. So the question becomes whether it's published or unpublished. Are there circuit court of appeals? And we have 13 courts of appeals, or really, really 12, if you're not talking about patent courts. If you're looking at the 12 circuits, is any of them conflicting with the other, published or or unpublished. Uh, If you've got the conflict, you've got the conflict. They might say, well, Circuit 6 says yes, and Circuit 9 says no, but Circuit 9 is unpublished, so not really. But like I say, as a lawyer, in terms of what we do in practice, we're, we're looking at everything. And yeah, published gets more play with us, but unpublished is a very much a part of what we do as lawyers. So I'm not sure how well that argument's going to necessarily play. The fact that there were unpublished cases cited in the petition to hear the case. I know in your blog you said that it depends on where the case originates, whether it was published or not. And you cited a case out of New Jersey regarding equal benefits uh, with a teacher. Now, what were the facts of this case, and how is it similar to Hopman? Well, um, what you're really asking is the ADA requires reasonable accommodations to get a person with a disability to the same starting line. Under Title I of the ADA, you have to have a disability. You have to be otherwise qualified or what the ADA calls qualified. And that is you have to meet the requisite skill training and experience, but you also have to be able to do the essential functions of the job with or without reasonable accommodations. The ADA also makes clear, both in Title I and in Title III, that privileges and benefits are something that people with disabilities also have a right to be accommodated for if it gets them to the same starting line as everybody else. So there's two different things going on here. One is failure to accommodate with respect to the essential functions of the job. And the other one is if an essential function of the job is not involved, or a job itself is not involved per se, is there a failure to accommodate with respect to the privileges and benefits that go with being an employee? So let's say you had a mobility impaired person or wheelchair user that wants to go into the company lunchroom, but the company lunchroom is not accessible. The company lunchroom has nothing to do with the uh, functions of the job but that person cannot use the company lunchroom because the company lunchroom is not accessible. So they would have a right to be reasonably accommodated so that they could use the company lunchroom unless the uh, company could show that there was an undue hardship in Title I speak or an undue burden in Title II and Title III speak, all of which mean the same thing. So privileges and benefits 
are things that an employee gets as part of their employment or part of the business that they want to work with or part of the ability to work with the business at all. And then employment is the actual job, both of which require reasonable accommodation. The question here is, well, he could do the job with or without reasonable accommodation, but he could do it better and function better if he had a service animal with him. So there's a lot of aspects of being an employee at Union Pacific that not, he's not being able to do because he doesn't have the service animal with him. And then you start getting into the issue whether when you talk about essential functions of the job and accommodating the whether you can do the essential functions of the job with or without reasonable accommodation, are you accommodating disability or are you accommodating the essential functions of the job? You get to very different places when you're talking about service animals. And I'm trying to make this all clear without going over everybody's head, so to speak, because it is a bit like dancing on the head of a pin, but I want to be precise. Precision is a key aspect of the uh, of the legal industry. And, you know, going back to what you said about undue hardship, could Union Pacific use that in their defense in declining to provide an accommodation, uh, especially after citing the health and safety of other workers? Or is there a way that Hopman could counter that? Yeah, I certainly could counter it. They can try it. Undue hardship and undue burden have the same meaning. Undue hardship is Title One. Undue burden is Title Two and Title Three. There are regulations that talk about what's an undue hardship and what's an undue burden. They basically match each other. What they come down to is two different things. Financial undue hardship, which is almost impossible to show. And in this case, they can't show that because he got the dog, he's willing to bring it. Uh, the other one is in Title One, we'll call it logistical undue hardship. In Title Two and Title Three, we'll call it fundamental alteration which actually appears in, in Title II and Title III, is the accommodation something that would turn the business operations upside down. The third thing that you're talking about is something called direct threat. Those are the three things going on here. Yeah, they can come up with it. I don't think a financial undue hardship is going to work. Would it fundamentally turn their operations upside down? I don't know. Health and safety is an interesting thing because the direct threat regulation for Title I are not the same as the direct threat regulation for Title II and Title III in some very important ways, but we're talking about Title I here. So all of that is there percolating around this case. Privileges and benefits, employees, direct threat, what is being accommodated, the disability or the essential functions of the job. The courts are all over the place on that one. There's a couple of cases out of the 11th Circuit that I strongly suggest you're accommodating the disability and not the job. But there are other courts that get very focused on what does that accommodation do in terms of relating to a specific essential job function. As a person with a disability, I think the better course of action is you're accommodating disability and not the essential functions of the job. It appears that there is definitely a split here. So, I mean, there's always a chance that they could take it if there is a split. But again, the Supreme Court is unpredictable. And the question is, what are they splitting over? Here, you've got privileges, benefits. You've got disability versus essential functions of the job. There really is not a split on direct threat. So maybe 
maybe they would find that. And then also, a split is not required for them to take the case. That is the most common way that they will take a case. But they will take cases if they want to, for whatever reason, even if no split exists. And there are some cases, well-known ADA cases from the Supreme Court, that there was no split and they took the case anyway. Uh, I'd have to do some research as to what that what those cases were, but I know there was at least one. Going back to splits, I also wanted to address the regulation that is also in play here, 1630 of the EEOC or Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's technical guidelines, which is cited in Hopman's brief supporting the Supreme Court here in the case. Under the guidelines, it says if a worker provides accommodations for themselves, rather than the employer providing them, such an accommodation would qualify as reasonable. But again, to what extent is that regulation enforceable? I just wanted to be precise. I didn't mean to cut you off. You expressed a desire to be precise. Technical assistance memorandum or guidelines is not the same thing as regulations. So regulations is going to be anything that appears in the Code of Federal Regulation itself. That's a final regulation. Guidelines are their interpretation of regulations. So if you're talking about something that appears in the Code of Federal Regulations, if it's in 1630 point something, that's a final regulation. If it's in an appendix, that's the EEOC version of their interpreting the regulation. And now we're back to the case that that's the Loper-Bright case that the Supreme Court has heard and relentless, which is how serious do we take those final regulations? So that's I just wanted to be precise, but I think the distinction is very important. Absolutely. It's certainly going to destroy any financial undue hardship defense because they don't have to pay for anything. Now, keep in mind, the vast majority of accommodations you never have to pay for anyway. So financial undue hardship is not easy to show. Count on one hand the number of times a defendant has successfully argued a financial undue hardship. Where all the litigation is, the accommodation that the plaintiff wants, and you're not entitled to the accommodation you want. You're entitled to one that gets you to the same starting line through a give and take process that we call the interactive process. Will it upend the way the business operates? That's the more common dispute because financial undue hardship is just so difficult to show. Knock out financial undue hardship. Then the question is, will that particular accommodation upend the operations of the business or the entity? If we're talking Title Three, would Oppmann having the service animal with him while he goes about his business upend the operations of business? Will that animal be a direct threat to others? Part of the problem here is the EEOC has no regulations on service animals. DOJ does, but the EEOC doesn't. So the EEOC has no regulations, but they do say if the worker provides accommodation for themselves, it is reasonable or does it have to be in plain language? If a person supplies the accommodation itself, certainly they're not going to be able to find an undue financial hardship. Can't because you're not paying anything. My point was that even if you were going to pay anything, it most probably won't be much anyway. So then the question becomes, if they're going to supply that accommodation, then the question becomes, is that accommodation that they will supply would that be, in Title I context, a logistical undue hardship to the company? And if it would be in a logistical undue hardship to the company, 
that's a term that Kai Feldlum, one of the originators, one of the writers of the Americans with Disabilities Act and a former EEOC commissioner, she told me that logistical undue hardship was the way she thinks of it. And she likes to look at fundamental alteration concepts from Title II and Title III. So the question becomes, would allowing the service animal fundamentally alter the operations of the railroad? You mentioned that it would be difficult to prove that the health and safety of other workers would be compromised or that it would be difficult well, to prove under it? under Title One, it's a direct threat to self or others. Under Title Two and Three, it's only a direct threat to others. So it's a very high standard. What it did, Chevron versus Ekadabal, what it did it was less off on the EEOC regulation. Then what DOJ did is it took school board in Nassau County versus uh, Florida versus Arlene and Chevron versus Ekadabo and put it into their Title II regulation. Those cases detail how you go about proving a direct threat, and it is not easy. Certainly. Last question here. I wonder if the offer for an alternative job made by Union Pacific, which was accepted by Hopman after the company denied his petition for a service dog, would play a role in the case because... The offer was meant to ensure Hopman... Oh, that's, uh, that's another question. There is indeed a circuit court split on the issue of when does an employer have to reassign a person who is no longer otherwise qualified to do a job to another, to a vacant job. The circuits do not see it the same way. For example, in the Seventh Circuit, the answer is, if there is a vacant position, that employee gets the job. In the 11th Circuit, the answer is, if there's a vacant position, that employee can compete with everybody. Everybody agrees that reassignment is a last resort option, but the courts are split on whether a person gets reassigned to a job if the position is vacant automatically, or whether that person has to compete with everybody else. And then you get into the whole issue of you're a lawyer and advising a company. How do you figure that out with the company as to how far they want to go? And that's neither here nor there. Well, William Gorn, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us here on Disabilitin. Thank you very much. Thanks. Keep up the great work. This bulletin is created and produced by me, Abe Shapiro. Our theme music is Baseball is More Than a Game by the George Romanis Sound. Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn.